Section 8 of The Jolly Parisienne and Other Novelettes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lisa Reichert. Mademoiselle Flavie by Emile Zola. Translated by George D. Cox. Chapter 3. A Spoiled Triumph. Ten years had passed. One morning, Nantes was sitting in the study in which Baron d'Anvilliers had given him such a formidable reception on the occasion of their first meeting. The study was now his own. The Baron, after being reconciled to his daughter and his son-in-law, had given up the house to them, merely reserving for his own use a little building situated at the other end of the garden and overlooking the Rue de Beaune. In ten years' time Nantes had won for himself one of the highest positions attainable in the financial and mercantile worlds. Having a hand in all the great railway enterprises, engaged in all the land speculations which signalized the beginning of the Second Empire, he had rapidly realized an immense fortune. But his ambition did not halt at that. He was determined to play a part in politics, and he had succeeded in getting elected as a deputy in a department where he had several farms. Since taking his place in the legislative body, he had posed as a future finance minister. Thanks to his practical knowledge and his ready tongue, he was day by day acquiring a more important position. He was skillful enough to affect absolute devotion to the empire, but at the same time he professed theories on financial subjects which made a great stir, and which he knew gave the emperor a deal to think of. On this particular morning Nantes was overloaded with business. The greatest activity prevailed in the spacious offices which he had arranged on the ground floor of the mansion. There was a crowd of clerks, some sitting motionless behind wickets, and others constantly going backwards and forwards to the sound of banging doors. There was the constant ring of gold, bags open and overflowing on the tables, the tinkling music of wealth which might have flooded the streets. In the ante-room a crowd was surging. Place-hunters, financial agents, politicians, all Paris, on its knees before power. Great men frequently waited there patiently for an hour at a stretch, and he, sitting at his table, in correspondence with people far and near, able to grasp the world with his outstretched arms, was realizing his former dream of force, feeling conscious that he was the intelligent motor of a colossal machine which moved kingdoms and empires. Suddenly he rang for his usher. He seemed anxious. Germain, he said, do you know whether your mistress has come in? And when the man replied that he did not know, he told him to summon his wife's maid, but Germain did not move. "'Excuse me, sir,' he whispered. "'The president of the corps législatif insists on seeing you.' Nantes made an impatient gesture and replied, "'Well, show him in and do as I told you.' On the day before, a speech which Nantes had made on an important budgetary question had produced such an impression that the matter had been referred to a commission to be amended according to his views.' After the sitting of the chamber, a rumour had spread that the finance minister intended to resign, and Nantes was at once spoken of as his probable successor. For his part he shrugged his shoulders. Nothing had been done, he had only had an interview with the emperor with regard to certain special points. However, the president's visit might have vast significance. 
At this thought Nantes tried to throw off the feeling of preoccupation which was weighing on him, and rose to grasp the President's hand. "'Ah, Monsieur Le Deux, he said, "'I beg your pardon.' Footnote. The events of the story are supposed to take place during the earlier years of the Second Empire, when the Duc de Morny was president of the Corps Législatif. Translator. End footnote. I did not know you were here. Believe me, I am deeply sensible of the honor which you are paying me. For a minute they talked cordially. Then the president, without saying anything definite, gave him to understand that he had been sent by the emperor to sound him. Would he accept the finance portfolio, and what would be his program? Upon this Nantes, with superb calmness, named his conditions. But beneath the impassibility of his face a mute triumph was swelling. At last he had mounted the final rung. He was at the top of the ladder. Another step, and he would have all heads, save that of the sovereign, beneath him. As the president concluded, saying that he was going at once to the emperor, to communicate Nantes' program, a small door which communicated with the private part of the house opened, and the maid of the financier's wife appeared. Nantes, suddenly turning pale, stopped short in the middle of a sentence, and hurried to the girl, saying to the duke, "'Pray, excuse me.' Then he questioned the servant in whispers. "'Madame had gone out early? Had she said where she was going? When was she expected home?' The maid replied vaguely, like a clever girl who did not wish to compromise herself. Understanding the absurdity of the situation, Nantes concluded by remarking, "'Tell your mistress, as soon as she comes in, that I wish to speak to her.' The duke, somewhat surprised, had stepped up to a window and was looking into the courtyard. Nantes now returned to him, again apologizing, but he had lost his self-possession. He stammered and astonished the duke by his clumsy remarks." "'There, I've spoilt the whole business,' he exclaimed aloud when the President had gone. "'I've missed the portfolio.' He sat down, feeling disgusted and angry. Several more visitors were then shown in. An engineer had a report to present to him, announcing that enormous profits would arise from the working of some mine. A diplomatist interviewed him on the subject of a loan, which a foreign power wanted to negotiate in Paris.' His tools flocked in, rendering accounts of twenty different schemes. Finally, he received a large number of his colleagues in the chamber, all of whom went into raptures about his speech of the day before. Leaning back in his chair, he accepted all this flattery without a smile. The clink of gold was still audible in the neighboring rooms. The house seemed to tremble like a factory, as if all this money were manufactured there. He had only to take up a pen to dispatch telegrams which would have spread joy or consternation through the markets of Europe. He could prevent or precipitate war by supporting or opposing the loans of which he had been told. He even held the fate of the French budget in his hands, and he would soon know whether it would be best for him to support or oppose the empire. This was his triumph. His formidable personality had become the axis upon which a world was turning. And yet he did not enjoy this triumph, as he had promised himself that he would. He experienced a feeling of listlessness. His mind was elsewhere, on the alert at the slightest audible sound. Scarcely had a flame, a fever of satisfied ambition, risen in his cheeks than he felt himself turn pale, as if a cold hand from behind had been laid upon his neck. 
Two hours had passed, and Flavie had not yet appeared. Nantes at last called Germain and gave him orders to summon Baron d'Anvilliers, if the old gentleman was at home. Then he began to pace his study, refusing to see anyone else that day. Little by little his agitation had increased. His wife had evidently been to keep some appointment. She must have renewed her acquaintance with Monsieur de Fondette. The latter's wife had died six months previously. True, Nantes disclaimed being jealous. During ten years he had strictly observed the agreement, but he drew the line, as he said, at being made a dupe of. Never would he allow his wife to compromise his position by making him a laughing-stock. His strength forsook him, as he became a prey to that feeling of a husband who demands respect. He experienced agony such as he had never endured, not even in his most hazardous speculations, at the commencement of his career. At last Flavie entered the room, still in her outdoor costume. She had merely taken off her gloves and hat. Nantes, whose voice trembled, told her that he would have gone to her if he had known that she had come in, but, without sitting down, she motioned for him to have done quickly. "'Madame,' he began, "'an explanation has become necessary between us. Where were you this morning?' Her husband's quivering voice and the pointedness of the question astonished her profoundly. "'Where it pleased me to go,' she replied in a cold tone. "'That is exactly what, in future, I must object to,' he resumed, turning very pale. "'It is your duty to recollect what I said to you. I will not allow you to make use of the liberty I grant you in a way which may bring disgrace upon my name.' Flavie smiled in sovereign disdain. "'Disgrace your name, sir. But that is a question which regards yourself. It is a thing which no longer remains to be done.' Upon this, Nantes, wild with passion, advanced as if to strike her. "'You wretched creature!' he stammered. "'You have just left Monsieur de Fondette. You have, I know it.' "'You are wrong,' she replied without recoiling. "'I have never seen Monsieur de Fondette again. But even if I had, it would not be for you to reproach me. What difference would it make to you? You forget our compact.' He looked at her for a moment with wild eyes, then choking with sobs and throwing into one cry all the passion which he had so long stifled, he flung himself at her feet. "'Oh, Flavie, I love you!' Unbending still, she drew back, for he had touched the edge of her dress. But the wretched man followed her, dragging himself on his knees with his hands uplifted, "'I love you, Flavie, I love you to madness. "'How it happened I know not. "'It began years ago, and it grew and grew, "'till now it has absorbed my whole being. "'Oh, I have struggled. "'I thought this passion unworthy of me. "'I called our first interview to mind, "'but now I suffer too much. "'I must speak.' "'For a long time he continued thus.' It was the shattering of all his principles, this man who had put his trust in force, who maintained that volition was the sole lever capable of moving the world, was crushed, feeble, like a child, disarmed by a woman, and his dream of fortune realized, his present high position, he would have given all for that woman to have raised him by a kiss upon his brow. She spoiled his triumph. 
He no longer heard the gold which sounded in his office. He no longer thought of the endless procession of flatterers who came to him to bow their knees to him. He forgot that the emperor at that moment, perhaps, was summoning him to power. All these things had no existence for him. He had everything save the only thing he wished for, Flavie. And if she denied herself, then he had nothing left him. Listen, he continued, whatever I have done, I have done for you. At first, it is true, you went for nothing in it. I simply worked to gratify my own pride. But soon you became the one object of all my thoughts, of all my efforts. I told myself that I must mount as high as possible in order to become worthy of you. I hoped to make you unbend on the day when I laid my power at your feet. See what I am today. Have I not won your forgiveness? Do not despise me any longer, I entreat you. As yet she had not spoken. Now, however, she said calmly, Get up, sir. Somebody might come in. He refused and still went on entreating. Perhaps he would have bided his time if he had not been jealous of Monsieur de Fondette. It was that torture which maddened him. At last he became very humble. I see that you still despise me. Very well. Wait. Do not bestow your love on anyone. I can promise you so much that I shall know how to move you. You must forgive me if I was harsh just now. I am out of my senses. Oh, let me hope that you will love me some day. Never, she answered energetically. Then, as he still remained on the floor, seemingly crushed, she would have left the room. But suddenly, beside himself with fury, he sprang up and seized her by the wrists. A woman braved him thus when the world was at his feet. He was capable of anything, could overthrow states, rule France as he pleased, and yet he could not obtain his wife's love. He, so strong, so powerful, he whose slightest desires were orders. He had but one desire now, and that desire would never be gratified, because a creature, who was as weak as a child, refused her consent. He grasped her arms and repeated in a hoarse whisper, I will, I will, and I will not, replied Flavie, pale and obstinate. The struggle was still going on when the Baron d'Anvilliers opened the door. On seeing him, Nantes released Flavie and cried, "'Your daughter has just come from a rendezvous, sir. Tell her that a woman should respect her husband's name, even if she does not love him, even if the thought of her own honour does not stand in the way.' The Baron, who was greatly aged, remained standing on the threshold, gazing at this violent scene. It was a melancholy surprise for him. He had believed them to be united, and he looked with approval on their ceremonious intercourse in public, considering that to be a mere matter of form. His son-in-law and he belonged to different generations, but although he disliked the financier's somewhat unscrupulous activity, although he condemned certain undertakings which he regarded as undesirable, he was forced to recognize Nantes' strength of will and his quick intellect and now he suddenly came upon this drama, which he had never even suspected. When Nantes accused Flavie of having an admirer, the baron, who still treated his married daughter with the same severity as he had shown her when a child, advanced with a stately step. "'I swear to you that she has just come from her admirers,' repeated Nantes, "'and look at her, she defies me.' 
Flavie turned away her head disdainfully. She was arranging her cuffs which her husband had crushed in his roughness. Not a blush was to be seen on her face. Her father spoke to her. "'My child,' he said, "'why do you not defend yourself? Can your husband be speaking the truth? Can you have reserved this last grief for my old age? The offence would fall on me as well, for the fault of one member of a family falls upon the others.' Flavie made a gesture of impatience. Her father had well chosen his time to accuse her. For a moment longer she bore his questions, wishing to spare him the shame of an explanation. But as he in his turn lost patience, seeing her mute and obstinate, she finally replied, "'Father, let this man play his part. You do not know him. For your own sake do not force me to speak out.' "'He is your husband,' said the old man, the father of your child. Flavie started, stung to the quick. No, no, he is not the father of my child. I will tell you everything now. This man is not even a sinner, for it would be at least some excuse for him if he had loved me. This man simply sold himself and agreed to hide another's sin. The baron turned towards Nantes, who had recoiled deadly pale. "'Do you hear me, father?' continued Flavie more violently. "'He sold himself, sold himself for money. "'I have never loved him, and he has never touched me, "'even with the tips of his fingers. "'I wish to spare you a great sorrow. "'I bought him so that he might lie to you. "'Look at him now. "'See whether I am not telling the truth.' "'Nantas hid his face in his hands. "'And now,' resumed the young woman, "'he actually wants me to love him.' He went down on his knees a while ago and cried. Some comedy, no doubt. Forgive me for having deceived you, father, but how can I belong to this man? Now that you know all, take me away. Indeed, he treated me with violence a moment since, and I will not remain here an instant longer. The baron straightened his bent figure. In silence he stepped forward and gave his arm to his daughter. The two crossed the room without Nantes making a movement to detain them. Then, upon reaching the door, the old man spoke these two words. Farewell, sir. The door closed. Nantes remained alone, crushed, gazing wildly into the void around him. Germain came in and placed a letter on the table. Nantes opened it mechanically and cast his eyes over it. This letter, written by the emperor himself, gave him the appointment of finance minister. It was couched in the most flattering terms. He could scarcely understand it. The realization of all his ambition did not affect him in the least. Meanwhile, in the neighboring rooms, the rattle of money had grown louder. It was the busiest hour of the day, the hour when Nantes' house seemed to shake the world. And he, amid this colossal machinery which was his work, he, at the apogee of his power, with his eyes stupidly fixed on the emperor's letter, uttered this child's complaint the negation of his whole life. I am not happy. I am not happy. Then, resting his head upon the table, he wept, and the hot tears that gushed forth from his eyes blotted the letter which he had just received, appointing him Minister of Finance. End of Section 8